So the big question is, how can physical therapists create a successful career earning six figures or more and give patients the care they need without relying on insurance companies for reimbursement? If you want to learn the answers to those questions and more, then you've come to the right place. My name is Dr. Aaron LeBauer, physical therapist, business coach, serial entrepreneur, and author of the Cash PT Blueprint. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to the Cash PT Lunch Hour podcast. This is your host, Aaron LeBauer, and today my special guest is Julie Lee. Julie is one of my Platinum Mastermind members and the owner of Issaquah MFR in Issaquah, Washington, which is right outside of Seattle. And Julie is someone who I've known quite a while and has moved her practice across country. And in the last year, she's totally crushing it while being like a part-time stay-at-home mom. And so I wanted to bring her on the show because she's got a unique story and inspiring things that she's going to share with you, or hopefully we'll dig out of her today. So Julie, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm a full-time mom. You're a full-time mom. Oh yeah. What does that mean? Let me go back and say you're a part-time business owner, full-time mom, or well, what is it? Because you basically have your daughter at home full-time and you're running a part-time practice. So tell me like, what do you call that? And how are you making it work? Because I think that's a secret that we need to get into today. It's crazy. Well, she's not at home with me anymore. She's home with me on Monday because I'm off on Monday. So I'm not really off. I'm not really ever off. You know, mm-hmm. that's why I specify that I'm a full-time mom because you're never off the clock. when you're That's true. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fun, but it's crazy. And we just roll with it like 2020. Anyway, she has help for school Tuesday through Friday. Yeah. And I help her on Monday. Yeah, this summer was different, wasn't it? Well, she was in camp. Okay. Through the summer. And then there are certain breaks that they have where she's home with me. But initially yeah. she was going to come with me to the clinic for certain days. And then I just realized that's not working because yeah. people yeah. were so stressed out and they needed that safe place. It wasn't right. so much that she was disrupting the treatment. She's very respectful, even yeah. being yeah. seven years old, but people need a place to cry. They need a place to scream. They need a place to cuss. They need a place mm-hmm. to let go. And I need to hold that space sacred for them. So I made sure that I could maintain those boundaries and I just have to limit my schedule. So I work 9.30 to 3.30 and that's all I can do. And I work Tuesday through Saturday. Yeah, that's awesome. So this summer, and the reason I wanted to bring that up because I get a lot of people say, Aaron, well, I can't possibly get started because I have baby on the way, moms and dads. You know, it's like, well, I can't because I have, I don't want to take time away from my family because I have all these things. But this summer, as things change with COVID. I think a big part of it was your daughter was probably just staying home with you and not going to camp or doing a different schedule. And you're like, Aaron, how do I make this work? Because I have a limited amount of time. Right. Well, yeah. In the beginning when COVID first hit and they were navigating that schools closed and she was online. So she Mm -hmm. was home with me um, in March and April. And how did you make it work? Uh, You know, my husband took some time off and I, I took that time to set some systems in place that I didn't set up before just because I got busy and then it's hard to do it all when you're parenting. And I get that, but you just have to make time for it. You know, yeah. like talk about time blocking. And I would set so many hours allowing me to work on my systems and so many hours to give my husband respite and so many hours to play with her to go outside because we make that a priority to get outside no matter what. So everything has to have a limit, you know? Right, right. And that's awesome. I think a lot of people talking about that, a lot of people have difficult time prioritizing, right? Prioritizing family or work. How do you choose and how do you make sure that you're able to do, you know, both of them, like, you know, family stuff, getting your business up to the level of success that you've had this year. It's hard, you know, but I'm definitely committed to that because I went all in and Mm -hmm. that was backed by my husband. So he absolutely supported my decision and he's carved out time in his schedule to allow me to do the things that I need to do. So it's 
it's definitely their trade-offs, you know? But have you guys had to have like tough conversations around business or has he always been supportive of you? No, he's always been supportive. Well, I think, let me back up. Yeah. <laughs> In 2014, I want to say it was a slow start to the year. And he asked me one day, do you ever just think about getting a regular OT job again? <laughs> and I said, no. I said, I would sell my body before I bill insurance again and or go back to work as an employee. Yeah. And he never asked me again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's go back. You had a practice initially in Memphis. When did you start that? And you know, can you tell us a little bit about what you had set up? And I think it was, you said uh, insurance and cash or were you like, did you start one way and do the other thing? Yeah. So in my Memphis practice, I went all in, in my mind at the time. In 2011, we found a foreclosed property in the heart of downtown, the heart of the business district. And it was right where I wanted to be. So we built it out. That took three months and I opened doors and I did a mix of insurance and cash pay. Then over time, I started getting frustrated with reimbursement rates. They were so extremely low. I started phasing out of insurance. And then about seven and a half years into the practice, we were both kind of working two jobs in the sense that my husband's always worked odd hours and he would help me in the morning and then he would go to work. Or if he worked nights, sometimes his schedule changed. But in the beginning, he was working a midnight shift. So he would help me a little bit in the morning and sleep and go to work or you know, mix it up like that. And then after having my daughter, I was managing the practice and I was busy with patients all day. And then I would go home and parent. And we were both kind of tired with that. And we decided to downsize. And so we sold my office space and I switched to part-time and my hours became like 7.30 to 3.30. So anyway, I moved into a professional ballet studio, Ballet Memphis, and I saw patients there and it worked out great. I really loved the slower pace of things and having more time to do some things that I wanted to do and have more time to be ready to parent full on in the evening. So. Knowing how well that worked for me, that's what I wanted to continue. It's hard to do both, but I think it's doable. Yeah. You were, you had said something like, so we first started recording it and the technology didn't work and you said something really awesome. You said, you said your husband asked you a question when you got started. Well, can you right. tell us so what we that was again? met and married in 2011 and that's when we came up on this property. And so we had this idea because I've always wanted to have my own practice and it ended up happening sooner than later. But Mm -hmm. he asked me, do you want to have a business or do you want to have a baby? And I said, well, both. And he said, well, which first? And I said, well, the business, it won't work the other way around. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we got started. Yeah, that's awesome. What do you think has been the thing that's allowed you, even before you moved to, you know, Seattle, like in Memphis, like what allowed you to be successful? What were the things that you were doing then that were working well? And whether it was in business, marketing, or, you know, with your schedule and relationship with your husband and family stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes. In Memphis, it was different. You know, I had lived there for a long time. So people knew me in the community and I had a lot more of a network built in. I never really marketed, to be honest with you. It it kind of just grew word of mouth. Like when I first started practicing a myofascial release, I was practicing on my triathlon teammates. And many of them came to my house for me to, you know, increase my confidence with my skills. And then they just started paying me. And so it became this side business, you know. And then I went to work for Susan Jenkins, who had a practice in All Branch, Mississippi. And I worked for her for four years before I met my husband and went out on my own. And during that time, I was seeing a lot of people on the side. It just got to be too much. And I was like, oh, look, you guys have to come to the clinic. I can't keep doing this. 
And so, you know, they followed me to Mississippi. And then when I started my practice, they followed me back to Memphis. And it really just grew word of mouth with, you know, the running community, the cycling community, the triathletes. I saw athletes of all types, gymnasts, tennis players, hockey players, a professional baseball player one time who was just in town to scout for the Redbirds, which was pretty cool. So I worked a lot with recreational athletes. And it really was 80% word of mouth. I had some Google ads, but to be honest, I never really tweaked them. They just kind of would run in the background Mm -hmm. and pay for themselves. Right on. And then you guys moved uh, out to Seattle to Issaquah. Like when, when did you guys move and what prompted the move? You know, just a life change. I always thought that the wind would blow us west. Mm -hmm. And my cousin got married here last, well, actually two Augusts ago. And I just thought it was absolutely amazing. It was really more of a calling before it was a conscious choice, almost in the same sense that happened to me in Memphis, because I was prepared to go anywhere graduating from college. But I just felt like it was time for a change. And instead of waiting until my daughter graduated from high school, we thought we could be enjoying this now. So if we're going to take this risk, let's do it now. And if it doesn't work, we could still recover financially or whatever. But it was just one thing that I felt I would regret if I didn't try in my lifetime. And so I wanted to take that risk and do it now. That's awesome. What do you like so great about like Seattle? Like, I mean, I've been there. It's cool. There's a big needle and they throw fish at the supermarket, but it's cold and rainy, (laughs) right? It is, but I think it's amazing. I think even the mist in the morning, it's just, I see the mist over the mountains and I think it's beautiful and inspiring. And there's so much nature to enjoy here. I love Mm -hmm. trail running and hiking and getting on the water, paddling and things like that. There's just so much to do and so much to explore. Even my patients say, you won't even get through it all in your lifetime. There's so much to do here. And I love that. I love that my daughter's going to grow up with the natural resources here. There's just so much to see. You know, we've made an effort to make concentric circles and exploring around Seattle and still like it just, you know, kind of wet your appetite for more. So I feel like I kind of have ADHD for everything you can do outside. And I have a long to-do list, but I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, checking things off that bucket list. Right, right. What's the, oh my gosh, what's the big mountain out there? It's called... Rainier. Yeah, Mount Rainier. That's it. You get all my big mountains mixed up, but I know I can see it uh, clearly because the pictures is almost always snow-capped. You, yeah. you also climbed that this summer, right? I did. That's like, that's not an easy thing to do. No, you have to be prepared. Yeah. I mean, you had to train. I mean, so this summer you were training to climb Mount Rainier. You're working on growing your business, Mm -hmm. being a full-time mom. Like, where'd you, like, how'd you fit? Like you, you, you didn't just like, you know, take a vacation and and start a business. You like worked for like a couple different goals. Can you tell us about like, how'd you, like, how much time did that take? And how'd you fit that in your schedule? I carved time out on my schedule. So basically it's a four month training program that I followed and knowing how much time it was going to take me each day and each week, I would block that off my schedule so that I wasn't overbooked because I have a tendency to take my time away from myself when someone else calls me in a crisis. And it was just an absolute boundary that I couldn't give up. So I would see, you know, a couple people and go work out. And then if I had time to see someone else, maybe I would, but it would just depend. So I would have to fit it in with my daughter's camp schedule. Right. Right on. That's cool. And not everyone makes it to the top. Like a lot of times people get to halfway up and the weather's bad or. Yeah, it has a 50% success rate. And, you know, it's very aggressive. 
elevation gain. Most people don't really realize that Rainier is like a freestanding mountain next to an ocean where you know you're at sea level and then you're climbing to 14,000. So it's not that tall, but when you you know when you get in the parking lot, you're at 15. Hundred. Whereas if you go to Colorado and you go hike, you're already at six thousand. So it's right. not much of a gain. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty good. It's an aggressive gain for this human climb, and a lot of people get sick. Yeah. So that's yeah. one thing that happens, or they're not as prepared as they think, and you know you have to be able to go hard for nine to twelve hours, and you're roped to your partners, and so you're responsible for their safety, and they're responsible for yours. So you want to make sure that you're ready to do this mentally and physically. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. That's so cool. I got shivers just thinking about that. That's really awesome. But it's one of those things where that's a lot like business. Wouldn't you agree? Right. right? You got to, sometimes you just got to go hard. There's a big elevation gain and you don't always get to the top by yourself, especially by yourself. Right. You need a good team. Yeah, you, you do. You need a good team and people around you. So you moved out to Seattle and by the time this spring rolled around, when we started talking again, things had changed or were different. Like what was different about restarting your business there? Like what, like what worked well, what didn't, you know, what, and what was happening? Here, I found that people weren't as friendly. They weren't as receptive to networking with me. You know, I really had to get out of my comfort zone and knock on doors and introduce myself. I didn't get a warm welcome. I didn't get reception there. Yeah. So I kind of stopped that. And I just realized I have to do what I can do. I have to focus on what I can control, which is me. Mm-hmm. So I started working on the thing that were in your Cash BT blueprint and the blog post that you put out about improving your organic Google rankings. Yeah. I did everything you said. And that made a huge difference within three months. That's awesome. That's awesome. Was there something like specific that you did that you can share or that you remember, or was it just like a kind of definitely a combination of things, you know, raising my rates, offering prepaid plan of care packages, tweaking my website to include the application Mm -hmm. that helps weed out your serious potential patients, your prospective patients getting the Google reviews, videos, and listing the website on the very first line Mm -hmm. and just slowly building that library on my website that got positive feedback. The patients really loved it, especially during COVID when we took a break from meeting in person. And that was one reason why I started it to keep them accountable for the exercises that I wanted them to do that no matter how many times in person we'd go over it, they'd still come back with questions and, you know, and wanted clarification, where to put the ball, where to put the foam roll, you know, how long do I hold this and what am I doing here? And, and that sort of thing. Like their proprioceptive awareness just really wasn't there like they thought, even for some of my really athletic and stronger clients. And so that was really helpful. They really liked that. And so I've just been building that. Yeah, that's awesome. Like you didn't have to do that before because what you had more time in Memphis or just, you know, was there something where people just more, was it that they were more receptive to networking or? I think it's just because they knew me, you know, personally, and they knew me, you know, in the sport. And so they trusted me, but yeah. So that word of mouth was, was more organic. Girls were organic. I didn't really have to work for them. There was a, a running store that I was shopping at for 18 years and I knew the staff. I treated most every, all of the staff and they sent referrals my way, especially when they weren't responding to traditional modalities, which was super helpful and appreciated. And so we kind of had that relationship. Mm-hmm. Also my team, you know, I, I've received a lot of referrals from my teammates and from friends and family members. And then it also would spread from there. So it wouldn't be uncommon for me to see the whole family. You know, I'd see 
one spouse and I'd see the other spouse and I end up seeing the children and I am seeing the grandparents and it's that started happening here too. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, is that only happening more recently now or, you know, was no, that just it was not kind enough? Of happening from the beginning, yeah. but I definitely have people that I feel like here in Seattle, they're so much more focused on their health and wellness. They have no problem paying for it. You know, they'll put money down as long as they're getting the results. And so I have patients that are anxious that, you know, I'm almost going to have to push them out of the nest. (laughs) They want to stay on. And it's like, I can't retain everybody because then I can't see new people. So I'm kind of having that problem with the overflow, which is a great problem to have. But, you know, you want them to have some confidence in what they're doing and they have to test the water too and get back out there because I can't treat them forever. Right. That's a good problem, (laughs) right? It's like, what do I do? I've got people, I've got, I don't have enough room for new patients. I mean, you're not seeing 40, 30 people a week. You're, how many people a week are you treating right now? No, I can only see four people a day because that's the amount of time that I have while my daughter's in school. So yeah. I see a maximum of 16 a week. That's awesome. And I um, 18, but that's not yeah. fun. Yeah. I mean, I like, I got to the point where if I saw 26 people a week, I was exhausted and just like, you know, like 18, 20. I was like, I could do this all the time. You know, it was a, it was a great number. Yeah. It's a great balance for me. And it's yeah. not so much the physical work. It's the emotional, you know, mm-hmm. I can listen with my full body for about four hours. Yeah. You know, that's, I'm glad you bring that up because I know a lot of young therapists, even uh, Caitlin, who, you know, works for me, you know, they don't really learn how to balance or handle like the emotions from other people. Like they're not really taught that in PT school. Like I was taught that in my massage therapy training and I took it for granted. And I was like, you didn't talk about this in PT, <laughs> like for seeing more people. How did you learn about that or figure that out? You know, I think when I downsized and I went to part-time, I started to realize that what a boost I had to my energy level and emotion, um, my emotional intelligence, I guess, if you will, that I just didn't want to go back there. You know, I, I have done seven or eight patients a day, but that's not a good number for me. I think because I do so many other things outside of work that I need that balance. And for me, that's the balance. I, I know other people can do more and that's fine. But for me, Four is a safe number and it's a fair number because after that, it's just not really fair to the people. How do you make sure, like, do you have a way that you make sure that you're not taking home other people's like baggage, negative emotions, you know, like letting that affect you? I think exercise helps, Mm -hmm. you know, but I do practice grounding and centering and before and after clients are things that I would do to make sure that I'm kind of shifting that off of me just in case I feel like it's too much of a problem. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I mean, sometimes like, you know, if I see too many people or, you know, have people that have a lot of negative energy, like I feel it at the end of the day, or if I'm not centered, I'll feel it more, you know, but if I, I got to a point where it didn't take me very long to feel uh, centered and ready for patience. <laughs> but if I wasn't paying attention, someone would take me off, off balance and like, it would affect me. So, you know, but I know that like, it's hard to explain <laughs> how is. to do that. It's hard to explain. It, but a lot of people probably recognize what that feels like, you know, you yeah. know, have Sometimes you ever worked for that? Like with, if I feel mm-hmm. like I can't do it on my own and I need mm-hmm. some energy to help dissipate it, then yeah. I'll use ink works on myself. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's yeah. cool. Have you ever like had the experience like right before you walked into a treatment room or treatment with a patient and you're like, 
felt something in your body and you're like, huh, that's interesting. And then they're like, Hey, this is exactly where it hurt. You're like, wait a minute. That's, did, have you ever had that kind of experience with people? You know what happens a lot when I'm treating someone and I feel it in my body. And I mm-hmm. think that's because I'm such a like intuitive and empathic person. Yeah. That's happened so much over the years. Like even from very beginning of taking seminars that I don't discount it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I'll almost like feel it beforehand. And I'm like, Oh, this is one, you know, like the person starts telling me where they hurt and I'm like, Oh, I've been feeling that, you know, it's weird, you know, I'll often feel the releases in my own body. Yeah. Yeah. That's really neat. And so you're an occupational therapist. So I want to ask like not many occupational therapists go into like private practice for themselves doing mostly like manual therapy, MFR, you know, et cetera. Can you, how did you end up down this path? You know, it's interesting in school. I had a really hard time with deciding between physical therapy and occupational therapy. And I took the prerequisites for both. And so Mm -hmm. at the last second, I kind of veered into OT because I thought I'd have more room for creative expression in the field. And I thought at the time I was going to be a pediatric occupational therapist. So that's what I did. But I felt like really hard to let go of, you know, treating the whole body. And I was very fortunate that I've always been cross-trained by PTs and I've always worked closely with PTs and they were never territorial with me. Mm -hmm. They were always, you know, sharing what they've learned. And, you know, I felt like it was a very nurturing relationship with the other PTs that I work with. You know, they let me work on the lower body and they'd work on the upper body. And it wasn't like, oh no, stay in your lane, upper, upper body only. And so a lot of the patients that we'd co-treat, you know, require two or three people on them. When I initially got into myofascial release, I was working with severely compromised individuals that were wheelchair bound, nonverbal, and had just a long list of diagnoses and issues. And they required two or three people to transfer out of their wheelchair onto the table. And so we always work with them as a team, the speech therapist, the physical therapist, and and myself as the OT on this team. And so um, we got great results doing that. And I think, you know, coming from that end of the bell-shaped curve and then like starting to work on these athletes in my home. And then, you know, when I went part-time into the ballet studio, I saw more like everyone else in the center. So I feel like I've seen all ends of the spectrum and everyone's responded beautifully to the work. That's awesome. One of those things where I forgot that you were an OT, like uh, you said something this summer. I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> just yeah. like a visual therapist, which I think is great because I think when we get to a place where PTs, OTs, even chiropractors, you know, and other professions, like where we feel like there's no distinction, like I feel like that's where we're doing some of our, our best work because it's patient centered and in a way rather than, you know, like body part centered and, you know, right. problem centered. Right. You put in the person in the fabric and the context of their life and their goals. And I think that's essentially what an occupational therapist does. Like we can justify pretty much anything, (laughs) but it just depends on what their issues are. Absolutely. So we met at Mafash Release 3 seminar was almost like five years ago. Oh, it was longer than that. Was it longer than that? Like eight months. Gosh, was it five? It was so it was, but I've, I'd known you before. I don't know if we had met at a seminar before that or not. I can't remember, but I, we had been in contact through email or through one of the email listers. I think I saw you at, it was either Quantum Leap. Uh, yeah, it was Quantum, Quantum Leap in, in Delaware, okay. right? Yeah. Yep. And I think I was thinking about transitioning out of Medicare and transitioning out of insurance. And I asked you some questions. Oh, wow. Right on. You, Do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? And you said, oh, sure. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we talked about that. And then yeah. 
after that conversation, I did hire an attorney to help me navigate opting out of Medicare. Yeah, I did. And successfully. Yeah, that's awesome. And there's slightly different rules. Like I know we don't have enough time to go into that with on the podcast, but if you're interested, there's, I've got a lot of other episodes and blog posts, just go search the blog and there's Medicare stuff. But was there anything specific with the attorney that you had to do or or change or make sure that it was running the right way so that you could see Medicare patients doing occupational therapy with them? Well, she um, tweaked some of the documents, mm-hmm. but then I sh- shortly after that, I moved. Yeah. So it didn't apply, but we know that it, that it was effective because I received a letter a year later acknowledging mm-hmm. that I was opt out. Of okay. Medic, so, wow. yeah. yeah. And, and that's a big difference. Like with PTs, we can actually opt out. You know, we have to have like do other things in place, but you say that, but you know, they have an option on the website and mm-hmm. I called and the staff, the rep walked me through the process. So it's like, if yeah. we can't opt out, then why would it be on the website? And why right. would they have the knowledge of being able to walk me through the process? Right. Anyway. Yeah. And I think that's the difference because like OT is included in that, but not PT. I think it's one of those things. So it depends on who you ask. Right. So Julie, you had said something to me also this summer. It was, I was like, oh, this is awesome. And I was like, we need to talk about this more. You sent me a text message like, check out how my business is doing. The other MFR therapists wouldn't believe this. Like, you know, can you, you know, could you share a little bit about like, where, where'd that come from? Like, what is it that you felt like other people wouldn't believe that you were able to do with your business or with patients? I think while well, moving and having like zero support system and network <laughs> in the community and being able to build from nothing, literally to the caseload, which for me, I work part time four patients a day. I think a lot of people have this mindset that you can't make a living working Mm part-time or you can't make a living as a myofascial release therapist, only seeing one patient a day. And I've known therapists that I thought, oh, I could work with this person when I was thinking of possibly built like building and bringing other people on, getting to know them through that process. And I realized, okay, we actually can't work together or that's not going to work, you know, for different reasons. But a lot of them had that mindset is that you can't make a living doing this. And so they don't even want to try. They don't even want to take the risk. And I know a lot of people don't want to take the risk and I understand that and I appreciate it, but I also know that I don't fit the mold. You know, I don't like to be micromanaged and it's interesting that ended up being this way for me that I've kind of paid my own path. But the fact that it, you know, started from nothing. And then people, as soon as I opened, people started coming. I had clients the first day I opened. And it wasn't like people were banging down my door, but I had enough to pay my bills, you know, which was a promising sign. And then as I started making those changes that you recommended, it started growing exponentially. By October, it exploded. And so my caseload has been full since like late September, early October. That's awesome. And I, you know, just for, I want to share context with everyone out there. I mean, you're making more per month seeing people part-time than a lot of people make doing full-time. I mean, you're, what you've shared with me is well over six figure month, like six figure years with just the month. So like, I think you've, you've showed me that uh, you're on pace to, you know, crushing it with what people are able to earn and what people are able to do. I think it's awesome. And I'm super stoked and proud of you to have months where you're saying like, Hey, I'm seeing four people a day and making over $10,000 in a month or more, you know, like, I don't know your books, but I want to share people that. And I think that it is because there's a misconception that we can't earn a lot of money and we shouldn't ask for a lot of money for a healthcare service. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, definitely. Why do you think people are afraid of, you know, like how much they can earn or how much they should ask for, or 
even that they can't make enough money doing what we're doing? You know, I don't know. I think there's a lot of deep rooted emotional issues with money and Mm -hmm. mindset with money that people have from long ago. And even I've had to work on that, you know, but when I got here, I realized in order to make this work, I shouldn't be struggling. You know, if I can only see four people a day, they have to pay because I need to make sure they're not going to waste my time, that they need business and they're going to be committed to the process because otherwise I'm going to go run trails. (laughs) Right. Run trails or hang out with your daughter. It's like, right. right? We'll do something else. Yeah. Is that because you've got to the point where you realize that your time is, you've, well, you've clearly realized your time is valuable, you know, or you wouldn't be valuable and we just won't ever get more time. We can always make more money, but we will never get more time. So I think that's why I shifted my focus away towards like doing things on my bucket list, even if it took longer for me to grow my business. And then Mm -hmm. I think detaching from that outcome. I don't know. I just started attracting people who were dead serious about it. And it's been great. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like that's something that even allowed you guys to move across country and be like, this is our bucket list. We may as well do it now rather than later. Right. Yeah. It's not something you picked up in the last year. Do you know where, like, are there any other experiences you've had that have helped you be able to make those decisions or take the risks? I listen to my body and I just had to trust my gut, you know? When I graduated from college and I spent resumes all over the U.S., literally from California to, you know, the coast of North Carolina, and I went on a handful of interviews. But when I went to Memphis, like I felt my solar plexus open up and bottom out. And that's always a sign for me that it's the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so when I was, I was like, Memphis, really? But yeah, Tennessee became three-dimensional on the map, and that's where I was going to land. So anyway, it, it kind of grew from there. But that, sim- that similar thing happened when I visited Washington. I'd always want to come. I had good intentions. It just didn't happen. Then when my cousin got married, we made it a priority. And when we came out here, my husband was nudging me. He's like, look, 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 look at Rainier. And I was like, oh, what? oh my God. And just the energy, I felt like my energetic anchor had already been uprooted. Like I said, before it became a conscious choice for me to move, I feel like the decision was already made that I needed to be here. And it felt right. So yeah, yeah. that's we awesome. That's awesome. Not many people are able to, to do that. I, know, I mean, not many people I talk to are able to say, okay, I'm going to trust my instinct and, you know, go for it because they've had a lot of times in the past where they made what they feel are bad decisions. You know, you know, I don't know. That's just really cool. I mean, are there times where you've made decisions like that where you're like, oh, this wasn't the right one? Or is it feel, does that, do those feel different when you look back on them? No, I think that when we saw the place that we purchased for my first clinic, you know, mm-hmm. that felt right. My solar plexus bottomed out and I knew that was the right spot. So we yeah. did it. And, you know, we sunk a lot of money into that place. It was amazing. <laughs> But I don't regret it. You know, if I still lived in Memphis, we'd have that thing paid off because yeah, my yeah. husband really didn't pay me. We put all my money back into the clinic to pay it down because that was the goal, thinking we were going to be there for 30 years. But mm-hmm. um, I'm glad we did it, you know, and then we went in stark contrast to me being in this minimalistic space here, which has worked out beautifully also. And that wasn't my intention. My intention was to stay small because it worked for me in the ballet studio, but now it's growing organically. And so it's kind of funny. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. So what are your goals for next year and even, you know, three to five years from now? I probably need to hire some help. So that's on my list. Working on my technology skills. So I have some goals related to that. I also have a climb scheduled in Europe, assuming that travel flows and, you know, but I'm going to train like it's happening and we'll see what happens. You know, I see the business growing. I see it expanding. I see another part-time or maybe full-time therapist. And so we'll kind of have to see how that goes, but I would love to have coverage 
so that there's continuity of care for my clients. So I can do these climbs without guilt Mm -hmm. because they have a lot of anxiety when I'm not working. (laughs) Right. So how many climbs are there? You, you have like a, is there a certain number that you're aiming for? Well, there's three that are on the bucket list. And then after that, it'll be just for fun. So what are the other climbs? There's Rainier and what else? Vernier was one and then Mount Elbrus in Russia is on the, on the dock for this year. Cool. Do you have like, I mean, anything cool, like well, Kilimanjaro, I don't know how hard that one is, but I know that's pretty impressive. And then there's the movie, the old Clint Eastwood movie, the Iger counter. I think that was in Switzerland. I can't remember. I think yeah. that was, you know, that one was cool. I mean, cause I saw that as a kid and as an adult and I'm like, well, I want to climb up there. It looks cool. Do you have any of those Swiss mountains on your list? Well, Mont Blanc's on there. And that's also contingent on if we can't do Elbrus, then Mont Blanc mm-hmm. is second place. But I want to do them both at some point, but I'm putting yeah. priority on the 7-7, seven, seven, but probably won't get in all 7-7. Seven, seven. So anyway, Russia and then Argentina and then Alaska. So we'll see. Cool. What, so what does that mean, 7-7? Seven, seven? The seven peaks on the seven summits, uh, the seven continents. Got it. That's oh, awesome. It <laughs> <laughs> was probably four. Yeah. And then I'll be content. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. So, looking back, if you were talking to someone else, we're going to recommend give some advice to someone else, even like another MFR therapist who we're connected uh, with who wants to, you know, grow their business and, you know, even do it without insurance. Like, what would you be your number one recommendation or, or any success tips that you have? To go for it. Yeah. To trust your instincts and to take those risks. That's awesome. Yeah. I and mean, sometimes you just got to take the, take the next step and uh, see where you land. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you have to reevaluate as you go. I mean, you're not going to have it all figured out the first day. But it's like you said, 80% is good enough. So you just have to move forward. You know, it's just like climbing a mountain. You literally put one foot before the other, and that's how you get up. That's awesome. (laughs) You move your foot, you take a breath, you move your other foot, you just keep going. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Well, shout out to John Barnes for uh, connecting us, which is really cool. I, I owe him a ton of gratitude. And uh, I want to thank you for being here today. Is If someone wants to check out your website or find you you know, online, social media, what's the best place for them to go? Issaquah Myofascial Release is the company name. It's www.issaquahmfr.com, I-S-S-A-Q-U-A-H-M-F-R.com. Awesome. Awesome. Do you have anything on Instagram or Facebook or would they I just do. I'm not <laughs> admittedly on there as much as I should be because that's the number one thing that falls off my list. So mm-hmm. that'd be the first thing I punt to an assistant because I have a hard time keeping up. So <laughs> that's always <laughs> at the bottom of the priority. But because that's not how people find me, that's just not my top yeah. priority. But yeah. I do try to stay relevant and have a presence there. But yes, I have an Instagram account and I have a yeah. Facebook account. Those are named Isqua MFR, Isqua Myofascial Release. And my email address is Julie, J-U-L-I-E at IsquaMFR.com. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, anyway, it's, people say, hey, I'm not on social media. I'm like, good. Don't let it use you. You just got to use it for your business. So that's it. I mean, that's totally cool. Uh, totally cool with me. And you know, the way I have it set up, like I get on there and like, there's nothing gratifying on here anymore anyways. So, you know. <laughs> uh, Julie, thank you so much for spending time with me today and uh, chatting about your business. And um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is the Cash PD Lunch Hour. Uh, this has been Aaron LeBauer and uh, Julie Lee. And we'll see you on the next show. Don't be afraid to take the next step and go out there and crush your goals. And we'll see you on the next one. Thanks.
Hey, what's up? It's Aaron. Real quick, if you're just starting a cash-based physical therapy practice or you already have one and you wanna learn how to grow it and scale it, this is for you. I just released my brand new book, The Cash PT Blueprint. Because I wanna get this book in the hands of every physical therapist out there, I wanna give it away to you for free. All I ask is that you pay a little bit of shipping and handling, and you'll not only get the steps to create your own cash practice, but the tools to grow it and scale it beyond what everyone else thinks is possible. To snag your copy right now, go to cashptblueprintbook.com. That's C-A-S-H-P-T-B-L-U-E-P-R-I-N-T-B-O-O-K.com. And we get your copy, give me a shout out somewhere on social media, and we'll talk to you soon.